Welcome to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast with Sakar Kali. During this program, you will hear guest experts sharing their experiences, best practices, and market insights. We discuss investing in multifamily apartment complexes and how a busy professional can passively invest hassle-free in various opportunities. Your host, Sakar Kali, owns millions of dollars of assets and has done thousands of value-add projects over 20 years now. So listen in for insights. Here's your host, Sakar Kali. Welcome to another edition of Premium Cashflow Podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Brian Burke with Praxis Capital. Welcome to the show, Brian. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. Thank you for taking time. Brian is with Praxis Capital. He's been investing almost 30 years now. They own and manage about 2,500 units, operate in several states, Florida, Georgia, California, Texas, Arizona. Boy, the list goes on and on. And Brian has been doing several apartment syndications over his lifetime. And we are here today to dig into his story and get some expert advice from Brian. So thank you for taking time, Brian. Please tell us a little bit about your background, how you got started, and how Praxis Capital and the immense success you have came about. Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. So, you know, I started, as you said, about 30 years ago, and I probably started the way most people start when they first get into the real estate business. And that's, you know, one small house and you, you buy it and you fix it up and rent it out. And then eventually you resell it. And I just kept repeating that process and did it over and over again. And, and really I was focused predominantly on buying, fixing up and reselling single family homes. I you know, that was really the mainstay of my business for about a decade. You know, I, I started slowly doing a few houses a year that ultimately I ended up growing after the real estate collapsed to over a hundred houses a year. Mm-hmm. And during that, during that time, I was figuring out the multifamily business and building a multifamily business as well, which, you know, we've now considerably grown over the last 10 or 15 years. I guess it's, I guess, well, I guess it's been about 18 years now. Uh, that I've been in multifamily. So that, that business has just been consistently growing with, with a lot of growth actually over the last couple of years. Awesome. Awesome. So Brian, tell us like what got you started in real estate? I know you started with single family business and what were some of your early struggles and what was appealing to you about multifamily that you thought that, hey, multifamily might be uh, sort of a good segue to go into in a big way. Could you maybe tell us a uh, compare contrast between both and why perhaps you maybe fear multifamily over single family, I guess? Well, geez, how, how I got, you know, started or kind of like why I got started is I didn't know any better. You know, I was, <laughs> I was literally, you know, 20 years old and, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't know what I didn't know. And I, I thought it would be great to start a business in real estate and, you know, I didn't know how little I knew and how I had no money. I had no knowledge. I had no connections. And so I figured, you know, what have I got to lose? I might as well give it a try. Right. Yeah. So I, I did. And, and, you know, I, I never looked back once I, once I got in. So, you know, in terms of, you know, how I ended up in multifamily was I had some single family rentals and I just thought, you know, gosh, it really makes a lot of sense to, have scale and, you know, work, you know, have larger properties and more units as opposed to one unit per property. So 
I sold two properties that I had and did a 1031 exchange into a 16 unit apartment building. And that was my first entry into multifamily. And, you know, I started off with a property manager and they weren't doing that great of a job. So finally I got rid of the property manager, decided to manage it myself, which in retrospect, I probably shouldn't have done, but it was an incredible learning experience, you know, to, to manage, to self-manage a, you know, a 16 unit apartment building. And I had a, a resident manager that I hired, you know, that, that lived there and I gave him a rent discount and, you know, he kind of handled the day-to-day -day stuff and I handled more of the high-level decisions. It was a, just an incredible way to really, you know, kind of get jumped into this business, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And I just, I just grew it from there. You know, when our market was going to crap in 2005 here in California, I recognized that there was really no reason to be buying real estate here. And, you know, there was really no reason to be buying residential single family real estate, given that sure. you know, the markets everywhere were going in the toilet. So I started looking outside of California and, you know, to, you know, go farther away, I realized, you know, I'm probably going to need bigger properties so that I am not you know, wasting my time, so to speak, or, sure. you know, going all the way across country for a, a single family house. So I ended up buying an 11 unit building all the way across the country in New York. And, you know, I, I had a, put a property manager in place and we fixed the building up. We just renovated the whole thing, increased the rents, added value and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, while nationally the market was going in the toilet for me, you know, this property value was going up, rents were going up and it was, it was working out great. And so, I, you know, that was kind of where I realized multifamily really is a better strategy, you know, for the long term. And that's where I turned my focus more to growing the multifamily side of the business. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, oddly enough, though, this was happening at the time that the market was completely collapsing. So that also opened up some incredible single family opportunities. And so we were buying single family homes like at massive scale out of foreclosure here in the Bay Area and you know, literally like over 100 houses a year fixing them up and reselling them. And that meant we had to raise a lot of money. So we got good at raising money. We got a good following of investors. And it's like, well, what's going to happen when the music stops? You know, when these foreclosures are gone, what are we going to do next? We'll have all these investors, we'll have all this investor capital who trust us and want to invest with us yet there will be nothing to buy. And, you know, I, I said, you know, multifamily, that's where that, that's where it's going to be. Why don't I build additional scale on the multifamily side of our business? And that's really where we started focusing our time. And, you know, our investors followed us there and started funding more and more acquisitions. And, you know, it's allowed us to, to get to, you know, over 2,500 units and a couple hundred million dollars in, in apartments and, and rapidly growing. That's awesome. That's awesome. So it was natural for you, Brian, to kind of step into syndications and use that sort of model towards multifamily. So I guess you are alluding to the fact that in your single family space, you were already doing, I guess, private money and some friends and family type of money into your single family that you just kind of ideally converted that towards syndication tour for your multifamily. Would that be a correct characterization? Yeah, that's, that's exactly what it was is, you know, we had a, we had a very strong track record in the mm -hmm. single family space. We had developed a track record in the multifamily space through kind of my individual investments in that, in that area. And, you know, we could leverage off the single family track record and the base of investors that we built for the single family side of the business. Mm -hmm. 
and, and layer that into, you know, our multifamily track record and use that to, to grow that side. And that's exactly how we did it. You know, you can't force this. People want to do the say like, oh, I'm going to go to a guru class. I'm going to learn everything there is to know about multifamily investing. I'm going to go out and go round up a bunch of investors and start buying hundreds and hundreds of units. And it really just, you know, it doesn't work that way. I mean, it can work that way. You know, every guru will have a few stories of some students that have actually been able to make that work. But for 99 and a half or more percent of, of people, if you're a successful multifamily syndicator, you probably got there through a process of growth sure. where you naturally and organically grew your business to where it is today versus, you know, plunging in with both feet and having instant success. Right, right. I, I think you, you raised several uh, good points there, uh, Brian. You know, the fact about education, doing things with integrity, having a good track record and, uh, you know, creating that following to propel you forward into multifamily and things like that, right? So uh, let's let's maybe save that thought for a little bit later in the show. Uh, we will circle back around that aspect as well. So getting back to sort of your story there, Brian, uh, you know, you mentioned where, uh, you know, the market was going almost uh, on the wayside and here you are you were analyzing markets and found some stable sort of areas where you could invest like for example in new york as you pointed out right could you maybe give us some pointers about how you go about analyzing those markets because i'm reading sort of the underlying current in your story is that regardless of where the market is i think there are pockets of opportunities that people should study and it's almost like contrarian investing, as we all call it, right? That you study the market and kind of keep the noise and the naysayers, the media on the side and know your target, know your market. Could you maybe elaborate on how you drill into certain markets? What sort of your mindset about how you analyze these markets? Yeah, you know, I, I think that market is everything, really. You know, some people will talk about you know, you know, just finding deals, you know, and saying like, oh, I found a deal and it's wherever, you know, and you're like, okay, that's yeah. great that, you know, that sounds like a, a great quote unquote deal, right? Yeah. But in that market that you're looking in or the market that deal is located in, you're just fighting a headwind. And that's why the deal is so good is because no one else wants to buy it because, yeah. You know, it's a deal, a deal for a reason. I think it's a deal for a reason, exactly. And you know, and then the other thing you got to think about is, you know, one day you're going to want to be a seller of that deal, right? And sure. do you want all the buyers thinking that that's a great deal, you know, or do you want people reaching for it because it's a great market? And so, you know, I want I want multiple offers when I go to sell. So I'm not afraid of being in multiple offers when I buy. Some people like to say, you know, oh, nobody's on this deal. I'm the only one looking at it. And, you know, and that's a good thing. But, you know, I, I think that's actually probably more of a negative than a positive, mm -hmm. you know, by and large. So I go through this exercise at the beginning of every year where we look at a variety of economic data. We look at some reports like the Milken Institute's Best Performing Cities Index, uh, PwC and ULI's uh, report on emerging trends in real estate, Census Bureau data, uh, data from Axiometrics and Reese and CoStar, just a variety of different sources that talk about how markets are performing, what markets are performing better than others, mm -hmm. you know, what, what areas have uh, above average 
income growth, job growth, and population growth. Those are the big three drivers of multifamily. If you have those three things, you're probably also going to have rent growth. Mm-hmm. And while you can buy, you know, a property anywhere and fix it up and improve operations and resell it, you can do that in even the worst markets. There's something to be said for, you know, flying in a tailwind versus always flying into a headwind. Sure. And, you know, I like to let the market help carry me to the, where I'm going. So I, I like to invest in markets that are giving me that, you know, that, that, that tailwind, so to speak. Sure, sure. And, you know, we choose a few markets each year based upon our study that we, we do at the beginning of the year. Mm-hmm. Invariably, what will happen is a couple markets will drop off. A couple markets will get added on. It's, it tends to be the usual suspects, but, you know, we always lose a few and gain a few every year. And, you know, that's, that's priority number one for us. It's really about looking for market first, and then we look for, you know, deals second. Got it. Got it. Uh, well said. Well said. And I, you said that exactly right, Brian, where you said that I think it's good to be in a competitive market. It's a good thing. Uh, you don't want to be a lone star in some crazy sub-market where I think uh, even if you're selling something attractive, there are not that good of a pool of buyers for your deal down the line. So you always kind of, you know, I almost like to call it that you're, you're thinking with the end in mind that if you're trying to perhaps think about selling it down the line, like five years or something, you want it to be in a healthier market. So got it, got it, awesome. Uh, What is your strategy of sort of syndicating these deals? Like what sort of deal structure, like general partnership, limited partnership, any preferred uh, uh, returns or anything you give, Brian, in these deals? Generally, ours are always, you know, our entity structure is typically an LLC. Usually we use Delaware LLCs. And, you know, the only reason we use Delaware LLCs for everything really is because that way we don't have to rewrite our operating agreement, you know, and, you know, because they're all state law specific. So if we always use a Delaware LLC, we can always use the same operating agreement. All we have to do is modify the term slightly from one deal to the next. Mm And then the, uh, the, the, the overall structure generally is, you know, we'll, uh, we'll have a preferred return followed by a sequence of, you know, waterfall hurdles where performance dictates profit split. And so, you know, the better the deal performs, then the more you know, we share as a managing member sure. in, in the outcome. And, you know, the lesser it performs and the more the investors share in the outcome. I see. I see. And as far as the GPLP split, is it more like 70%, 30% to GP? Uh, how, how do you go about that? Each deal is a little bit different, sure. but I would say that if I, if I looked at all of them and said what was kind of most common, sure. I would say that, you know, you're going to average out our, our most common structure would be an 8% preferred return mm-hmm. followed by a 70-30 split with 70% going to the investor, 30% going to mm-hmm. us as the manager. Until you reach, in general, most of ours will be about a 12. And then after the investor receives a 12% return, then, then the split starts to lean into our favor. We go to a 60-40 until they get to a 15% return. Mm-hmm. And then after a 15% return, you know, we split 50-50. You know, the, it's important, though, to realize that, you know, when you're changing waterfall splits, you're only changing the split of the amount that exceeded the previous hurdle tier. Sure. So, you know, if you get above a 15% return and we're splitting 50-50, it doesn't mean that we're splitting everything 50-50. It only means that we're splitting 
the cash flow that exceeded the amount that brought you to that 12% return sure, or sure. 15%, I guess. Absolutely. So it's, it's fair to say that the investors' interests are forefront and they are rewarded first. And sort of anything extra cream on the top, uh, I think, uh, as I call it, uh, you get a little bit awarded on the smaller portion that exceeds that first hurdle, if that's the correct characterization. Yeah, I mean, as, a, as, as we perform better, then we share better, you know, and if we don't perform as well, then we share lesser. So it, it you know, they say that, that this kind of a structure, you know, is designed to increase the alignment between investors and sponsors by you know, creating a scenario where the sponsors are motivated to exceed their projected returns so they can split, you know, they can split in higher. And, you know, I'm not a big believer in, in that necessarily, but that's kind of the general thought behind it. But it, yes. it, 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 that's a little bit more of a sales pitch than it is truth. Sure, sure. Got it. So Brian, speaking of, I think, uh, markets, let's talk about acquisitions and how is your criteria in general? So we, we talked about markets just now, right? So uh, speaking to the deal itself, what do you look for in a deal? Meaning, you know, always, uh, as we all understand that there is sort of a quick math that we do that, hey, if this looks generally good, we're going to dive in and do a bit of detailed analysis. So speaking of that, how do you go about analyzing deals? Just kind of a rule of thumb first or, you know, like a quick math that works for you first. And then you like any specific things that you look for, whether, you know, it's competitors are, let's say, 5 to 7% or 10% better their amenities that you can provide better. So your opportunity to increase your rents would be better uh, through your value add strategy. Could you maybe tell us like what sort of things you look for, you know, when you're looking at these deals? Well, you know, we don't have any quick back of the napkin analysis. It, mm -hmm. in, in my view, that just doesn't exist. I mean, anybody that's using a back of the napkin analysis and and quickly just either dismissing deals as being no good, you know, is probably missing out on some opportunities because mm -hmm. you just, you really don't know if the deal's any good until you've gone through the entire sequence of steps mm -hmm. to underwrite it completely. Mm -hmm. So we don't really, you know, the only test that we use that's kind of like a quick check method mm -hmm. is does the deal fit in our box? Is it in a market that we'd want to invest in? Is it a size that we want to acquire? You know, is it too big or too small? Is it too old or too new? And, you know, is there a value add component? You know, mm -hmm. is there some kind of believable story that mm -hmm. can lead us to the conclusion that we're going to be able to increase the rents at this property and thereby increase its value? If the answer to any of those is no, then the deal gets tossed aside. Sure. But and, and I think that's what I meant, Brian. Yeah. That's what I mean. Sometimes, you know, people say, hey, we're not going to look like 1970s or lower. We're not going to look like 80 uh, units or less. We, we're going to be definitely looking at 150 to 200 minimum, uh, you know, some of those things. And then, you know, some people say, hey, some of the markets that I operate in, I definitely know what sort of per unit in general, you know, the costs are. So typically, if something strikes and let's say we find that oh, geez, it's coming out to maybe 70,000 a unit or 65,000 a unit. That's just too high because we know we are buying at 
some X amount below that. that I mean, just something, but I, you're absolutely right that I think the more detail you do, that's I think gives you a better understanding of what's the potential. So go ahead with your thought. Yeah, yeah, that's that, that's the primary point. And, you know, is that really, you know, whether it fits in the box is the only test. After that, yeah. if the deal fits in the box, it's it's a full court press to underwrite it by, you know, examining trailing financials, examining rental comps in the area, and doing a complete underwriting analysis to determine, you know, what are we going to be able to do here? Mm-hmm. And and really, you know, we need to be able to increase rents probably somewhere in the neighborhood of $150 to $350, depending upon, you know, the, the size of the deal and age and location mm-hmm. in order to make it work. You know, you're going to have to have some kind of a bump because the problem that you run into is markets right now are performing about as close to perfection as they're going to. And it's, it's hard to say with straight face that that's going to continue. So when we're underwriting, we're assuming that occupancy is going to get worse, uh, that uh, collections are going to get worse, that, you know, bad debt's going to get worse, those kinds of things. So when you start making those assumptions that the property is going to perform worse than it already is, mm-hmm. you're taking an instant chop to the income. So unless you can increase rents and, you know, and have provable comps to show that you can increase rent, you're kind of like, you know, two steps back, one step forward. Mm-hmm. At least if you can increase the rents enough, then you're taking two steps back and three steps forward. And, you know, you're going to, you know, you're going to be trending the, the income in the right direction. So, you know, we've got to have the ability to increase revenue through mm-hmm. actual actions that we can take mm-hmm. uh, to, uh, to get it there. Awesome. Awesome. I, I definitely like how you characterized it, Brian, there. And speaking of those very elements, uh, Brian, do you typically underwrite and build expectations towards the investors saying that, hey, first six months to a year, um, I think this is sort of the gloom day scenario that we are projecting and perhaps come year two, we may be slightly, uh, you know, trending towards positive and things like that. So do you typically do sort of do those type of uh, projections and like align your uh, and build your expectations for your investors accordingly? Do, do you do some of that? Well, that's the syndication business. You know, you just nailed it. You know, you hit the nail right on the head of what the syndication business is. People think that this business is is about real estate investing and about attracting investors and about building a portfolio. But truly, the job of a, of a syndication sponsor is to manage the expectations of their investors. That's really what this business is all about. If you mismanage your investors' expectations, you'll have a very short career. Because the way this goes is, let's say, for example, that I promise my investors that they're going to get an 18% return. Mm -hmm. And I deliver for them a 16% return. Uh, You know, they're not going to be all that happy. Sure. But if I tell them that we could expect to do a 14% return, and I deliver a 16% return, then we're going to look pretty good, right? And they're going to want to reinvest in the next deal. Mm -hmm. Now, when you do that, the risk is that the investors that want an 18% return aren't going to invest with you. Mm -hmm. And the investors that 
are out chasing the highest return they can find, you know, they they go onto the crowdfunding website and they, they get a grid with like 15 different investment opportunities and they scan through the grid and look for the one that has the highest IRR and they choose yeah. that one based on that criteria alone. Right. You're not going to get that investor either. Sure. So mm -hmm. It makes it really difficult to grow this business when you do this, mm -hmm. but once you get a strong foothold and people understand how you're underwriting and you know, you can truly under promise and over deliver, sure. they will reinvest with you and slowly but surely you'll build an incredible following of loyal investors who will be back time and again to invest over and over and over in, in multiple deals. On the other hand, if you're taking the first approach, which is to over promise and under deliver, those investors are probably one and done. You know, after that first deal, they're not doing the next one because they, they didn't see you, you know, perform to your, to meet their expectations. And now you're always in this marketing phase of always having to recruit new blood. Sure, sure. And so really, if you want to grow a syndication business, you manage your investors' expectations properly. And that means forecasting, rent growth, occupancy, rental rates, expenses, income, all of those things. Forecast those properly and conservatively is really what this business is all about. That's awesome. That's awesome. I love how you calmly state those answers and you're so thorough and sort of to the point about these things because I cannot overstate how many times sometimes I, I would interview someone and there's a conversation off the charts about mindset, psychology of success, blah, 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 blah. And boom, I mean, you find that there's, you know, very less, uh, you know, practical stuff that how you're going to do the value add, how are you going to practically deliver that return? That, that's got to be a very thoughtful, tangible. And I, I love when you say that a clear story as to how you can get to that end point is it's all about. And if that means that we are telling the investors that, listen, for six months, it's, it's going to be hard work. Perhaps there's going to be lower returns and they are all outlined in your pro forma that you projected. Uh, this is the story that's going to happen. I love what, how you stated there, Brian. Uh, speaking of value add, Brian, could you maybe give us some of your favorite ways as to how you have done your value add and what are sort of the quick hits that you like to see in a property that kind of gives you that overall, let's say, curb appeal, better tenant experience, and you know, what goes into all of that? You know, a value add is almost kind of a rubber stamp. I mean, you know, oh, basically you're going in, you know, you're, you're doing very similar things from one property to the next where, you know, I mean, the formula is essentially, you know, carpet or flooring, paint and flooring, appliances, plumbing and lighting fixtures, just putting those things into a unit to modernize its appeal. Some of the things that we do just kind of go like a couple steps above is, you know, we'll put in USB outlets in the mm -hmm. kitchens and bedrooms, mm -hmm. you know, those kind of technological things, like especially like even the USB night lights or the LED night lights mm -hmm. that are, that go with their part of the outlets, you know, just little things like that, that, mm -hmm. you know, gives a little bit more wow factor when people are touring. Mm -hmm. So, you know, sometimes it's cabinet faces, sometimes it's countertops, you know, just, you know, it just depends really on, on the, um, you know, how blank the slate is that you're working with. Sure. And then on the outside, you know, before you even 
start fixing up all the insides, the first thing you have to do is get people to want to walk into the office, right? So, you know, to get them to walk into the office, you want to upgrade some of the landscaping around the entry sequence, uh, signage, flags, you know, color, seasonal flowers, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Sprucing up the office itself, you know, with mm-hmm. new furniture, kind of doing a, the same upgrade to the interior of the office that you do to the interior of a unit. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, then it's uh, then it's about model location and tour path. So mm-hmm. you're going to put a model unit in. You're going to stage it, put in some really nice looking furniture. You know, have that unit fully upgraded, and you're going to pay attention to the tour path when you're taking a a prospective resident from your office to your model unit, what are you walking them by? You know, are you walking them by a putting green and a swimming pool with new pool furniture, you know, and there's a dog park on the way. And, you know, you want to make sure that the walk path that you're going to take has amenities that you can point out. That's a very, very, that's a brilliant point, Brian. Yep. So, you know, those are, those are kind of the things that, that you want to think about. And then, um, you're going to be able to get a better resident because you're going to attract them with the visual appeal of the outside and you're going to get better rents because you're going to show them the inside and they're going to be sold. That's awesome. That's awesome. I like how you stated there, Brian. I know Brian, previously you mentioned to me before we just got started that you manage your own properties and there's a lot to say about how you can greatly affect the culture of your property management company, whether it's answering the phones or someone walking through the door, uh, how are you greeting your prospects and things like that. Uh, Or there are some, you know, hard uh, things where, you know, maintenance people are doing a lot of these jobs as to how they must be meeting, greeting the residents, uh, you know, what to say, what not to say, things like that. Could you tell us like sort of your thought process on how you go about managing these units and what sort of things are you implement currently to kind of build that better tenant experience? Well, you know, the, the resident experience starts with the manager that's in place at the property. And so, you know, you, the, every larger property will have a, its own staff mm-hmm. and, you know, that staff is in the office and, and should be greeting every resident and every prospective resident. When someone walks in the front door of our office, that, that, uh, manager on site should be standing up to greet them. You know, these, these are just little things where, you know, it just makes that person feel acknowledged and it just kind of sets the tone of the, of the conversation that follows. So, you know, property management is something when, when I first started in this business, we were, we had third party property managers and that was, you know, you just get the best property manager you can find in each of the areas where you own real estate and you turn it over to them. And, and, you know, in the beginning, that's kind of a strategy you have to employ. You don't have enough scale to self-manage really, especially if you're managing outside your area. I know that, you know, you're, in, you're investing primarily in your own backyard. Sure. It's probably a lot easier for you to self-manage your own assets because you can literally drive to them anytime you want. Sure. For us, we have assets all across the country and our entire senior team is located in California. And, you know, how do you manage an asset in Florida from California? And while technology certainly is a big part of it, I mean, we literally are so tied in with all of our properties that, you know, I can pull up a dashboard right now and I can see the occupancy at every property we have. I can see how much money was collected today. I can see how many prospects walked through the front door, how many applied to be a a resident, how many were approved or denied. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I have access to all of this data at a glance portfolio wide, which is, you know, an incredible technological advancement. 
But you know, we also have camera systems at the property. So I literally can get on my phone and I can see what's going, I can be at any of our properties anytime I want just simply by looking and, you know, looking through cameras. And, you know, so that's kind of one part of it, but really there's also kind of the personal touch and, and being a, you know, present on site. Mm -hmm. And that's important as well. And so if you're, if you're going to self-manage like we do, you have to take it as a business and you have to look at the management side is a separate business from uh, the acquisitions business. And so we've, we actually have that and we, we have a, a separate company that is our property management company. I have a chief executive officer that is in charge of that property management company. He runs the day-to-day -day operations of the property management company. And, you know, he came here after having started national multifamily footprints six times in his 40-year career, mm -hmm. managing tens and tens of thousands of units all across the country for some of the big names. I mean, names that you would recognize. Sure. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, he's here in charge of our property management company and is in, you know, running that day-to-day -day aspect of that property management company as if it were a third party management company it just happens that we own the whole thing. You know, in addition to that, we have a chief operating officer who has 25 years experience in multifamily operations. Mm -hmm. who is also, you know, lives his life on a plane and is, you know, going and spending days at a time on our properties and, you know, kind of going from one to the next to the next. You know, we have a corporate controller who's responsible for all the accounting and, and all that side. So there's, there's truly an entire management company behind sure. our acquisitions company. And you really do have to take it that seriously. It is a separate business. That's awesome. Thank you for giving such a broad scope of things. Speaking of these systems, as far as, you know, all the details that go around, uh, you know, the properties and the entire asset gamut of things, right? Could you give us insight into for, for practical purposes that, okay, what do you use for rent collections, your property management, whether it's security systems, yada, yada, yada. That, I mean, sometimes, you know, investors are not understanding that, okay, how you can like just pull everything up? Is it like a buildium, yardy, that kind of thing? Or how's that? Could you give us some practical tools that you use? Yeah, there's there's a number of different tools that are out there. Yardy is certainly one of them. You know, there's a number of different competitors in this space. You know, the, the platform that we use is a platform called RealPage. You know, mm -hmm. at the property level, they have a module called One Site Leasing and Rents. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the properties use one site to manage, uh, leases and rent collections and kind of all the property level stuff. And then, you know, there's a real page accounting module, which, uh, you know, performs our company wide accounting and it allows us to, you know, have all of our books and records in one spot, you know, uh, company wide. And then we also use a, a module from them called business intelligence, which is what I was telling you about the dashboard where, mm -hmm. you know, it takes all the data from all the properties and, and puts it all together in one place for me. Right. right. The BI dashboard, as I call it, basically. Yeah. Right. Got it. And speaking of markets here, Brian, I think, I know we are coming, turning around in a very hot market. I mean, assets are literally, uh, you know, getting extremely competitive and bid up pretty high and stuff. And I, it's, it's almost like you've got to really watch how much you are offering for certain deals and pretty much willing to walk away from uh, a lot of these uh, best and finals and things like that. Could you give us some insights into how much competitive you think we are or what stage we are of sort of 
appearing and how we could position ourselves and just give us some insights into how, how you are sort of driving right now, like how cautious you are about things. Well, we're in a very competitive climate right now. And, and of course, this depends on market too. I mean, you know, if you're, if you're investing in, you know, Tumbleweed, Kansas, you know, it might totally not be all that competitive. Sure. <laughs> yeah. You, you might be the only offer to come along in six months and, you know, they're just like, great, you know, give us anything. You found a deal. Um, but <laughs> yeah, you found that deal, right? right. Exactly. <laughs> but, you know, if you're, if you're investing in, you know, in really good top markets, it's going to be competitive. I mean, that's just, just no way around it. You're going to be in a multiple offer situation. What they tend to do is, you know, do these best and final rounds where, you know, everybody submits offers and then they pick the top three to six offers and then they, they ask you to resubmit and then they go with the highest one or they go with the highest two or three and try to put them against one another to see who will come up the most. Sure. It's just a whole game, you know, and, and we play that game, you know, make no mistake about it. We're making offers on every deal that we think fits, but we're making offers based really on, you know, a price that we believe in. And that price may not be the price it takes to get the deal, but it's a price we believe in. And usually, you know, a couple things will happen. Either we get selected, you know, even though we're probably not the highest offer, we still get selected. In fact, you know, we're, we're in escrow on a property now where, you know, we were outbid by $700,000, wow. but we still got the deal based on our reputation. And then there's other times where you submit the offer and you don't get chosen. And then, you know, two, three, four, five, six months later, you get the phone call saying that, yeah, you know, the first buyer didn't perform and, you know, are you still interested? And, you know, then we can slide in and get the deal that way. So, you know, in terms of marketed deals, our hit rate is about as close to 0% as you can get. <laughs> You know, while, while we chase them and we make offers, we rarely get them. Where we really seem to excel is one of two places, either rebound deals, which are ones where, you know, we went through the whole offering process, we weren't chosen and we got it later anyway, mm -hmm. because the first buyer didn't perform or there are uh, deals that we get off market where, you know, maybe the broker says, geez, you know, you guys took a really solid run at this deal and I'm sorry you didn't get it, but Hey, I've got these two other sellers that, you know, also want to where we've been successful. I see. I see. Got it. Got it. And speaking of the different advice and things like that, Brian, how were some of the best advices guided you? Like what you were thinking before or some of the advice that you got over the years? Give us some overview on some of the key points or people who have influenced you in your career. Oh, geez. Uh, I know it's a lot of trial by uh, trial by fire a lot of times, but I, I mean, you know, I have personally come across many people who gave me great advice uh, over the years. So could you give us maybe some insights in on your side? <laughs> yeah, you know, when when I bought that very first multifamily property about 18 years ago, 17 or 18 years ago, I told you about, you know, I knew nothing about investing in commercial real estate. In fact, I was a little intimidated by it because I, I didn't really understand how it all worked. And, you know, I was selling these two single family homes. I didn't know what I was doing. And the, an agent that I had worked with for years who had been selling a lot of our flip properties, you know, he told me, he's like, you know, 
he was a CCIM, a commercial, a commercial broker. Yeah. And he sat me down and walked me through how to read an income statement. And it was, that was my first introduction to commercial real estate. And that was a huge influence to me because prior to that meeting, I knew nothing. And, you know, now I had at least a foundation of knowledge, certainly nowhere close. I mean, I look back at, you know, how much I knew when I bought that first, that first property compared to what I know now. And it's like, universes apart from each other but you got to start somewhere and that was really influential for me after that you know I was really primarily self-taught I spent a lot of time reading books and a lot of trial and error and a lot of making mistakes and Mm -hmm. you know it it really took a long long time to feel like I gained competence in this business enough so that I felt confident you know being a steward of a hundred million dollars of investor capital uh, to grow this business. Sure. I want to highlight bold and underline that steward word. You, you know, that's exactly yeah. how we are, whether, you know, that's investors or bank aligned. I think my always belief is that these properties will pretty much outlast us. And I think doing the right thing all the time is the way to go, whether that's your contractors, lenders, investors, just pretty much goes all around. Yep. I appreciate your advice, Brian, here. Speaking of this deal analysis and things, uh, Brian, do you analyze your deals by sort of your pretty much homegrown tools that you have or like, how, how do you go about that? Do you have your in-house tools that you use? Yeah, completely, completely homegrown tools that's evolved you know, numerous times over the years. I think, you know, the model that, that I'm using currently, it's extremely sophisticated model. Mm-hmm. And it, I think it's like version 91. And that's after I started tracking, you know, version changes, you know, because <laughs> I, I probably had 200 version changes before I ever started tracking it. So, you know, literally, there's been, you know, hundreds and hundreds, I've, I've spent thousands of hours developing, literally thousands of hours developing this analysis, uh, these analysis tools, completely homegrown, enormously sophisticated and flexible, Hmm. um, and enormously accurate and tried and true. And, you know, we've run this thing through the gamut. And, you know, anybody that's seen the output, you know, we got a lot of investors who are very, very smart, and know their way around uh, around numbers that mm-hmm. try to poke holes in our analysis and have not found any. So sure. you know, it gives me an incredible amount of confidence in the tools that we're using. You know, I think it's one of our competitive advantages for sure. That's awesome. So it, it took version 91 to come to a gold standard. <laughs> uh, yeah, probably like 291. Or, 291. 291. I'm not even really sure. That's awesome. That's awesome. And is it is it Excel written or is it like Visual Basic? Like how is that? I mean, without it's uh, yeah, it's it's built in Excel, but has plenty of Visual Basic uh, behind Excel. I see. So you're using macros and all that whole nine guys, yeah. I guess. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, that's nice to know. That's nice to know. And Brian, do you feed in all the competitive data and things like that? It's it's all that sophisticated, or you, you know, I guess it's your competitive data stays different, and you're just running the numbers within your tool. Is that is that kind of how it is? It's all in one. Yeah, you know, all of our competitive data is in there, and you know, we're able to analyze you know neighboring properties, and that that data is in there, including you know graphing out rents and. And, and all sorts of stuff. There's uh, quite a bit of 
of flexibility there. That's awesome. That's awesome. I know it's it's all confidential and proprietary data, so I wouldn't ask you more questions on that. <laughs> <laughs> That's why right. you wouldn't get very far anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know it, it, it starts to get, I mean, so far advanced that, boy, I mean, I have seen some tools where, oh my God, I mean, you're talking sheets and sheets of data you know, different sheets and it's like, whoa, I mean, the information just flows from one to other. It, it does get overwhelming, you know? Yeah, yeah I, I, ours is ours is probably yeah, 15 or 20 different sheets. And, you know, it, you know, I've had people ask me for it before, you know, and, and it's like, you know, you, you won't get a copy of this thing any sooner than you'll get the recipe for Coca-Cola. It's probably <laughs> the world's second most closely guarded secret. Absolutely. I, I, I totally admire that. Awesome. And please tell us, Brian, like what projects are you currently excited about? What, what sort of keeps you excited? I'm excited to go to Maui at the, uh, in a few months. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I really don't get excited about real estate anymore. I used to, you know, probably the first 10 years or maybe even the first 15 years I was in this business, I was excitable. I mean, I remember, you know, like, I feel like a kid in a candy store. There's deals everywhere. and This is sure. great. <laughs> you know, and all that stuff, you know, now it's, uh, I, I guess I've just become very pragmatic mm -hmm. in that real estate is a vehicle that we use, you know, we're a financial services business, you know, like a stock broker, broker stocks or financial advisors might, might sell stocks, mutual funds and insurance, you know, you know, what we're selling is we're selling a financial product. We're selling a, uh, an investment opportunity that people can invest in and expect to get a return on their investment. And, you know, in the investing world, anybody that gets excited is probably going to have a short career. You know, it, it really is more of a business about, you know, just taking emotion out of it. And, sure. and so we really try very hard to keep emotion out of the deal. Mm -hmm. So I, I tend not to get too excited. Uh, you know, I, I just look at this as, you know, well, while those guys are selling conventional investment products, our, our investment vehicle just happens to be real estate. And, you know, it's not very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And speaking of raising capital, Brian, do you typically raise capital on a per deal basis or do you typically have a sort of a fund that you collect proceeds all the time and then you know, as deal uh, comes along or you get anything under escrow, you start to uh, distribute. What, what is your capital raising strategy? We've done both. I've, I've done both funds and single asset syndication in the single family space, you know, which is kind of where our business was born from. Everything we did in the single family space was done through blind pool funds where basically we're raising you know, X number of dollars, we have complete discretionary control over that money and how it's spent. We buy the assets that we determine are appropriate for the fund and we execute the strategy A to Z, you know, through a fund structure. On the multifamily side, everything that we've done so far has been through an identified asset syndication. Mm -hmm. And that more often than not means that we're buying one property and we're raising the funds for that one property. However, we've done a few deals where, you know, let's say we're buying two properties either as a portfolio from one seller or one that we're doing right now is we're just buying two properties that happen to be next to each other from two different sellers. Mm -hmm. You know, in those instances, we've actually raised on a multi-property syndication where it's 
one raise, one offering, but two identified assets. Mm-hmm. Not a blind pool fund where we're going to say, you know, here, we're going to raise 50 million and we're going to go find something to buy. Uh, you know, we already had identified what we're going to buy and we're raising money for it, but it doesn't just have to be only one property that goes into a syndication. You can do more. I see. And speaking of that conservative underwriting and taking that conservative stand, do you also raise significant or enough uh, operating reserves as well, other than sort of your normal uh, CapEx and things like that? Do you, do you raise for that bucket as well? Yeah, you know, probably uh, somewhat to our own detriment. You know, we tend to raise a lot. You know, I've, I've been through cycles and I've survived cycles and I know what it does to cash flow. So mm-hmm. we, I like to have a lot of capital reserves. And, you know, unfortunately, it compromises returns a little bit because, sure. you know, if you're raising a million dollars and you're going to generate X number of dollars in return, you're going to get X percent. But if you're raising a million one, for the same return, you're going to have a lower percentage, right? Because you have more money going in for the same money coming out. So, you know, it does, it does impact our projections to some degree, but I'd rather be safe than sorry and have the capital there. So, you know, we, we raise a considerable amount for each deal. I mean, you know, as a kind of a starting point, a basis is, you know, roughly like 1% of the deal size. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're doing a $20 million deal, that's $200,000 just in cash that just sits there plus one mortgage payment. So mm-hmm. that's, that's tends to be our starting point for what we're going to raise it just, just as uh, capital reserves on any given deal. I see. I see. And on a uh, related topic there, Brian, speaking of sensitivity analysis, how do you sort of, what, what favorite scenarios do you mimic? Is it, you know, interest rate hikes, uh, uh, any dips in occupancy? Give us some quick favorite ones that you'd like to place emphasis on. Yeah, we do a sensitivity analysis. In fact, this last deal that we put out, our sensitivity analysis grid had, I think it was 100 different scenarios. Oh my goodness. Uh, Actually, uh, I take that back. It was 300 different scenarios. Wow. 300 different scenarios. And, you know, it's funny, a long time ago, you know, before I had the ability to do sophisticated sensitivity analysis. Uh Uh-huh. You know, my, uh, my director of investor relations came in my office one day and was like, uh, this investor wants a sensitivity analysis. You know, can you give me something? And I'm like, what do you want me to give you? I mean, you know, it's like, I can model anything you want. You know, tell me what rent growth you want. Tell me what this you want and what that you want. I can model to anything. Sure. But how am I supposed to figure out what somebody wants in a sensitivity analysis and, you know, because there's so many different possibilities. Sure. And, you know, I, I, it used to frustrate me to assert, I got to admit, you know, he's like, my gosh, how am I, you know? So finally, I just said, you know what, screw it. I'm going to just do exactly that. I'm going to show essentially every possible scenario and let you figure it out. You mm-hmm. know, if, if you want to see, you know, what's going to happen if rent growth is this or if income is that or occupancy is that or cap rates do that or the hold time does this or the hold time does that. I'm going to give you all of that information and you get to pick. Right. So, so it literally we had 300 different scenarios in, in our last, uh, our last offering. So we're taking income that increases or decreases mm-hmm. throughout the hold period. We're taking cap rates that increase or decrease relative to our exit cap rate projections. Mm-hmm. And we're taking occupancy that increases or decreases based on our baseline of our projection. 
And again, you know, that's kind of the x-axis with the same y-axis of cap rate changing. And then we take each of those scenarios for a three-year, a five-year, and a 10-year hold. Mm -hmm. So you can see, depending on any hold period, any cap rate, any occupancy, or any change in income, you can find the scenario that you want. Right. And really, I mean, it's not all that useful to someone because nobody knows what's going to happen. But what is useful is somebody could look to see what's it going to take to get my return to zero. Sure. And, and, and you can go work it in reverse. Look for the zero in the sensitivity analysis and then find the cap rate and the occupancy that gets you there. And you can kind of see what that worst case scenario, what it would take to get to that doomsday scenario. So it is kind of interesting, but there, there, there's a lot of variables. Right, right. No, I, and I think you said it correctly there that I think you put out more as being a 300 scenario, but you're absolutely right that based on the different hold periods, you, you want to understand that, okay, if my occupancy drops, what, what it's going to take to be still be break even and, you know, make sure I'm net positive, you know. So that, yeah. that, that's, that's where we'll say. And I, I've seen those charts and we, in fact, model something similar. But it, it's interesting that, you know, to note that after three years, you start to say, hey, the five-year chart may be starting to see it's more relevant and you place emphasis and you're seeing those numbers at that point. So it's, 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 it's all good, actually. Wow. Yeah, you know, it's true. Like when you look at a three-year uh, sensitivity analysis, mm-hmm. they say, gosh, you know, this goes into negative IRR if the cap rate jumps you know, 50 BIPs and, you know, income decreases by 8% were negative. Mm-hmm. But then you look at that same scenario where cap rate jumps 50 BIPs and you're, you know, 10% negative or whatever, you know, in income, and it's actually a positive return if you hold for five years. Mm-hmm. It tells you a story, right? Because it's telling you if you're in that scenario at year three, you don't sell. Sure. You, know, you have positive cash flow, you don't sell. You hold and you wait until you get to that same set of variables on a five-year sensitivity chart. And mm-hmm. you know, if things get worse, you could hold for 10 and look at those same variables on a 10-year sensitivity chart and you're back into positive return territory. So you can make tactical decisions on, you know, do you hold or do you sell based on that sensitivity analysis? Completely, 100% agree with you there. And this is where I say sometimes that if you're doing the right job and everybody's doing their duties, real estate in general tends to be forgiving. And of course, there are some offsetting, you know, uh, comments to that as well. But generally, if all things given equal, knowing the fundamentals of, let's say, you know, some appreciation and, you know, your debt write down and things like that, you know, as you rightfully pointed out that if year five is not uh, looking rosy, you could as well pause and keep on holding. And perhaps it may be the seven, nine, ten that would be looking rosy, but all in all, it's not like, oh my God, you're just crashing and burning. It typically doesn't happen unless, you know, somebody's done something really wrong. That would be totally separate conversation. But generally, real estate would tend to be, you know, for a hold investor, it would tend to be, you know, sort of a positive experience. Would you agree on that statement? Yeah, it tends to be resilient. I mean, as long as you're buying right and you're financing right, it tends to be resilient. You know, where people got into a lot of trouble during the real estate collapses, they were so over leveraged that, you know, when, when things really started going into the toilet, they were going into negative cash flow and they had no equity because the financing that was in place was so high, they couldn't refinance and get lower interest rates. You know, they really had no ability to exit. The property's value dropped below the amount of the loan, so they couldn't sell. The cash flow dropped below the debt service, so they couldn't hold. 
You know, they were stuck. The only thing they could do was foreclose. So if you buy right and you finance right, real estate can be resilient. Uh, you know, as long as you know, as long as you're aware of the risks and you're underwriting properly and, and not underwriting to perfection, that's what gets people tripped up. Right, right. And speaking on those similar lines there, Brian, that we at the start of the show, we alluded to this fact that, you know, it's easy to get into real estate and think that it's all, you know, roses and, you know, all hurrah, right? What would you say or what advice would you give to a beginning investor, especially to a multifamily investor? Um, because, you know, I, I fear this notion uh, that there's a lot of content out there that typically says that, oh, it's really easy. You know, you align with a mentor or you align with some experienced person and it will be all great. And, and uh, you know, I fear the fact that someone not having a decent background or a good bit of experience, whether that's, you know, rehabbing or flipping, uh, I, I really, uh, you know, recommend always that you've got to have some practical experience to understand what you're going to do, how you're going to operate and things like that. Could you give us you know, knowing your depth of experience and sort of the wear and tear under your tires at this point, Brian, could you give us some practical insights and real truth, truthful advice about this topic? Well, the best I can do is to, is to if, I, if I think introspectively about what I know now about how this business works and about, you know, op, you know real estate operations, acquisition, underwriting, all of those things, and I, I reflect on what I know now and then I think back to what I knew 15 years ago when I was making, you know, my first multifamily investments and I compare, you know, that level of skill and knowledge, it's scary. And to think, you know, I was out there buying thinking I knew everything, you know, I, I thought I knew everything I needed to know. And it's incredible how much of a knowledge void there was. So, you know, when I, when I think of it in, in, in those terms and, and yes, I was, I read all the books. I'd been to some of the classes. I'd gone to a couple of the boot camp seminars and, you know, and, and, and I'd kind of seen all that stuff. And, you know, I really thought I knew what I was doing, but there's a, a massive knowledge void that comes and, and it only gets filled with time and experience. Sure. And so can you go and get a mentor and gain some experience? Yes, certainly you can, but you just need to, you know, ease your way into this business because there's such a responsibility when you have other people's capital at stake. And, you know, the risks are enormous if you do this improperly. And, you know, you don't want to be that guy. You don't want to be the one that loses your friends and family's money. That's an extremely uncomfortable conversation sure. that anyone could ever have. And right. you just don't want to go there. <laughs> you take your time ease right. your way in grow organically get educated get experience buy smaller properties i mean there's some people out there like they just disagree like don't buy small properties it's a waste of time and you know and i just think that that's how you it's how you cut your teeth you know it, it's like if you think about it you know the entire human nature is built that way no one comes out of the womb and is born as a full-grown adult hops in a car and, and drives off. You know, everybody has to, you know, learn how to even roll over before you can crawl and then learn how to crawl before you can take your first step and then take your first step before you can learn how to run and then learn how to ride a bike before you drive a motor vehicle. You know, I mean, all of these things happen in a progression in life for a reason. Sure. And 
this, uh, you know, multifamily and syndication and being responsible for other people's capital is no different. It's, it's the same kind of progression that's needed to, you know, be fully competent. Completely agree. I love how you describe that uh, there, Brian, that the more sophisticated you grow into, I think at the level that you play, Brian, there you, you rightfully identified at the top of the show that you are a financial services and an asset management firm. And you're looking at from, from that lens, you're not looking from a lens that, oh, this is a hundred unit property I'm managing. That, that's really not, not the focus or that's not the vision that you operate through. It's a very different lens. And it's, it's a very, it's a unique way that how you grow and how much education it takes and how position and the vantage point of you as a person changes. It is, it is an evolving and a shifting target. And that, as you rightfully indicated, comes through education, a lot of trial and errors and experience. Very well said there, Brian. I, I completely appreciate your candid advice and truthful analysis and take on a lot of these things. Sure. Uh, and uh, one last thing, Brian, how people can get hold of you? Uh, a couple of different ways. You know, our company's website is praxcap.com, which is P-R-A-X-C-A-P.com. It's short for Praxis Capital. Some information on our website, it's a great place to learn more about what we do. Also, uh, biggerpockets.com is an online real estate forum that I participate in heavily. Uh, and, you know, I'm found on there frequently answering people's questions and, you know, trying to give at least the, the best advice I can come up with yeah. at the time. Mm-hmm. Awesome, awesome. Thank you. And I am Sakar Kavli, the host of the show. Uh, you can find us also at premiumcashflow.com. The website is extremely thorough full of practical you know statistics articles and in that vein of things you know experts like Brian come in our shows are not a 30 minute quick pitch of some sales or anything it's a very thorough detailed deep dive with no bs uh, involved uh, we we only interviewed such top experts or some inspiring young entrepreneurs as well so thank you for taking time Brian uh, I appreciate all your time today. I'm hoping that in the next version, we can dig into your 300 scenario sensitivity analysis just on the lighter side there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That was Thank my you. pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Sakar. Thank you. Have a good day. Thanks. All right. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast. Please join us at premiumcashflow.com to sign up for weekly updates research articles, and more. We will see you again for another great interview with an expert guest.